Let's open our Bibles to Jonah chapter 1, verses 1 through 3 is what we'll be looking at this morning. Jonah 1, 1 through 3. Sometimes the most privileged people are also those who are most ungrateful. You may have recognized this in, in your own life. More than likely, you've recognized it in the life of someone else. Right? The rich and the famous, those who inherited the wealth of their parents, those who seems like they didn't earn anything, but they have everything that they could ever need or want. It's kind of like spinach in one's teeth or odd personality quirks. It's all too easy to recognize in, in others but so much more difficult to recognize it in ourselves. So I was reminded of it just yesterday when uh, we, my daughter and I in particular made a trip to Bojangles and we were going to go get some Bowberry biscuits because we opened the pantry and there was nothing there to our liking. And so we decided on a whim, well, let's just go get some Bowberry biscuits. I wasn't too excited about going, but they twisted my arm and I had a couple Bowberries as well. But on the way there, uh, we had a conversation which somehow led to third world countries, Africa and Haiti, and it, sprung, it came to my mind. You know, people in Haiti couldn't just do this. They, they go to their shelves and they don't have the, the food to their particular liking. Oh, we'll just hop in the truck, we'll drive a few miles over to Bojangles, we'll have the money that we need to pay for the Bojangles, we'll just, we'll just go get some Bowberry biscuits. It reminded me of these certain privileges that I have, uh, of the, the ability to, to get in a vehicle and drive somewhere, to, to have the cash available, to have a preference of what I wanted to eat in the morning. All of these privileges we often don't think about ever as we go about our daily routines. So consider for, your, for yourself, in what ways are you privileged that others around the world are not? You might be privileged simply by the place in which you were born, particular location in America. You might be privileged in some ways because of your skin color or your gender or your nationality, the fact that you are an American, or because you have a certain set of parents that have set you up in a good place for your life. Now, these privileges aren't wrong in and of themselves, are they? You can't help but be an American. You can't help but be born to the, the parents that you have. Rather, the, the rightness or the wrongness comes in how you respond to these things. Do you respond with great gratitude for how you've been blessed for no reason at all? Or do you respond, as we often see in others, with a sense of pride, a sense of self-importance? A sense that you are more valuable or better than others. I don't know if you can make the connection or not, but in some ways the book of Jonah is about a man with many spiritual privileges. But even after all the mercies of, that God shows him, he often responds in selfish pride and in ingratitude for the mercy and compassion of God. We see it early on in the book, even in the first few verses of Jonah. We see great mercies from God, and yet we see the res surprising response of God's servant. So as we consider the book of Jonah, as we consider these things this morning, let us 
be quick and, and careful to reflect upon the great mercies of God to us. And let that cause us to respond with a heart of gratitude that we might live in light of His mercies to us. I'm going to read Jonah 1, 1 through 3, but first I'm going to read 2 uh, Kings 14, 23 to 27, a somewhat related passage, just in that it mentions Jonah, son of Amittai. Listen as I read that, and then I'll read Jonah 1, 1 through 3. In the 15th year of Amaziah, the son of Joash, king of Judah, Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel, began to reign in Samaria, and he reigned 41 years. And he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. He did not depart from all the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, which he made Israel to sin. He restored the border of Israel from Lebo Hamath as far as the Sea of Arabah, according to the word of the Lord, the God of Israel, which he spoke by his servant Jonah, the son of Amittai, the prophet, who was from gath Hepher. For the Lord saw the affliction of Israel was very bitter, for there was none left, bond or free, and there was none to help Israel. But the Lord had, said, had not said that he would blot out the name of Israel from under heaven, so he saved them by the hand of Jeroboam, the son of Joash. Now read along with me. Follow along as I read Jonah 1, 1 through 3. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. Father, we pray that at the hearing of your word, you would give us faith to do what you say. We pray that you would make it effective in our hearts, apply it by your Holy Spirit to us, keep us from the temptation of merely applying it to others. In Jesus' name, amen. In our text, I want us to see two acts of mercy from God and one act of rebellion. Our passage begins in the form of most narratives in the Old Testament, and it came to be. This is following, this is a, following the narrative arc of a story. And what came to be in this instance, what happened one day, was that the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai. As we read, he's also mentioned in 2 Kings 14. He's mentioned as the servant of the Lord, as a prophet of God, who spoke mercy and blessing to Israel, even though King Jeroboam was a sinful king. He spoke mercy and blessing to Israel because God saw the affliction they were bearing. In the scripture, this phrase, the word of the Lord, is used often when it comes to prophets or leaders. So the word of the Lord comes to prophets, to leaders in Israel, to bring some message of blessing or warning. All the way back in Genesis 15, we read that the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram, I am your shield. Your reward, reward shall be very great. In 1 Samuel 15, 10, the word of the Lord came to Samuel about the evil king Saul. In 1 Kings 17, the word of the Lord came to Elijah 
Also in verses 8 and 9 of, the cha- of chapter 17, the word of the Lord came to him, Arise, go to Zarephath, which belongs to Sidon, and dwell there. Behold, I have commanded a widow there to feed you. Time and time again, God, throughout the Scriptures, is speaking to His people. The word of the Lord comes to Abraham, to Samuel, to Nathan, Solomon, Elijah, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Hosea, Joel, Micah, Zephaniah, Haggai, Zechariah. The word of the Lord coming to the Lord's people. And what we tend to forget about this is that this in and of itself is a very great mercy from God. First, that God would have a people for himself chosen, he says, because of their own weakness and in spite of their sin. But second, that God would give his word to his people. That God himself, the creator of all things, would speak to his people through the prophets. Men of God who were commissioned to deliver the message of God. This is the word of the Lord. That is Yahweh, the great I Am, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The God who revealed himself to Moses in the burning bush and led his people out of Egypt, the God who made a covenant with his people, a unilateral covenant of peace and grace to all the offspring of Abraham. So the words of the prophets weren't just made up by men and then attributed to this everlasting God. They were the very words of God himself. Last week, we considered the power of God's word. Remember that. God speaks, let there be light, and there is light. But today I want us to consider just the simple truth of how it is a great mercy of God that He speaks to us. It's a mercy from God that we have His Word. Romans 1 teaches us that all people are without excuse for their sin. Why are we all without excuse for our sin? Because we know God exists by what He has made. We know by nature that we ought to honor Him and give thanks for all that He has done. Yet, which one of us has done so perfectly? We, we know we ought to honor Him merely by the fact He has created this world. But what do we do? We grumble at God's good gifts and use them for our own pleasures instead of God's honor. So what mercy is it then that God has not simply left us with creation to reveal who He is, but He has also given us something clearer, a greater revelation in His Word. Consider Psalm 19. Take take this to heart. Consider the mercy of God in giving us His Word. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned. In keeping them, there is great reward. 
This is a great mercy of God that he has given us, his word. But his mercy doesn't even stop there. He has given us more. It's one thing to get a letter from someone you love, someone you missed for so long, and something altogether to see them face to face. Amen? A few weeks ago, seven-year-old Natalie was reading her new favorite book, Hero Dad, in the public school assembly, when all of a sudden, in the back of the assembly room, appeared her dad in military fatigues. You've seen the story before. You've seen stories like it, haven't you? And I'm sure I don't have to tell you that if you watch that video, tears will come to your eyes just like they came to mine. While he was gone, no doubt, her father and her had looked at one another's pictures. They had communicated in other ways. But there's just something about seeing someone face to face. Being reunited with them. And Hebrews 1, 1 through 2 tells us long ago, At many times and in many ways God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days He has spoken to us in His Son. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. We shouldn't read over this phrase here in Jonah 1 and not consider this mercy, not just flit over it like we are so tempted to do. The simple fact that God has spoken is a mercy to us. He has made himself known and even in a greater way to us than these great prophets we read about in Scripture. Can you believe that mercy he has given us? What a great privilege we have that God has spoken to us in His Word and in His Son. Now, if you look at the content of this Word of the Lord here in Jonah, you might say, well, that's not good news at all. There's nothing particularly merciful about that. Well, let's take a look at that in verse 2. What is this Word of the Lord which comes to Jonah? Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it. For their evil has come up before me. The command to Jonah, arise and go to Nineveh. Get up and go. There is an immediacy to it, an urgency to it. It's not, take your time and think about this. It's get up and go. The mother who wakes her child in the morning to get ready for school may say at first, son, it's time to get up. And perhaps she means it's time for him to start stretching Start thinking about getting up, and you'll get up in another 10 or 15 minutes. It's kind of a preparation for get up. But if he lingers too much longer, her voice may become more urgent. Son, it's really time to get up. Get up and get ready for school. We've got to get going. What the Lord is calling for here is obedience, immediate obedience for Jonah. Get up and go to Nineveh, the great city. We first read about Nineveh in Genesis where it is said that Nimrod, what a name Nimrod is, sounds like such an insult, right? That great-grandson of Noah built this city along with other cities in Assyria. We note that it's a Gentile city. It's a, a city outside of the land of promise. It's a people who are not of the covenant people of God. 
But further, we see it's a great city full of great wickedness. Their sin has come up before God. Their evil has come up before Him. Their calamity. We're reminded of the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah, which goes up to the Lord. And the voice in Revelation, which cries out against Babylon. Her sins are heaped up as high as heaven, and God has remembered her iniquities. Consider this, we're reminded here that although God is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, He isn't merely some tribal or regional God. His covenant people may have lived in Israel, the land of promise, but His reign extends throughout all of the world. We may be His people here at Christ Church, Rollsville, but He is the God of all the earth. We could say the God of all the universe. Nothing is outside of His rule and reign. Every sin is a sin supremely against Him, whether a person acknowledges Him or not. And no sin escapes His notice. If you have flown internationally, or if you do at some point, more than likely at the airport as you arrive back home, you'll be greeted with lots of long lines. But as you stand in those lines, you'll also be greeted often, if not always, by a man with a leash, and on the end of that leash is a dog, maybe a German shepherd. And as you pass by, this dog takes a whiff of every bag you own. Their amazing sense of smell tells them if there's something in that bag that does not belong, something they've been trained to smell. It's amazing just how quickly you walk by and they catch a sniff and let you on by. And brothers and sisters, we can be sure of this as well. Not a whiff of sin gets past the nose of God. Not a thing, not a sin escapes His sight. Not a single cry from those oppressed goes unheard. All sin goes up before Him. And all the voice of those who cry out go up before Him. He is sovereign over every town and city and state and nation And those who sin against him will receive justice. But consider that even this task which is given to Jonah is a mercy from God. Did you notice that? What does God owe this Gentile city which is full of evil? What does he owe to them? He owes them nothing. He created them for his glory. And they did not live for His glory. They rebelled against Him and they deserve His justice, His wrath, His punishment. He could have simply destroyed them without a single hint that it was coming. We don't see any hint of a call to repentance here in Jonah's task. He doesn't say, call them to repentance. We don't see that in this task. He's simply to go and cry out against it, pronouncing the impending doom which is to come. However, doesn't the mere fact that he is publicly calling out, proclaiming judgment against Nineveh, imply that there might possibly be a chance? There might be a sliver of a chance to turn things around, to change the outcome. There are no promises, but at least implicitly, the announcement of doom signals that maybe there is a chance if we change our ways. Brothers and sisters, I wonder if you have considered 
what a mercy warnings have been in your own life. If you are an unbeliever, meaning you have not embraced Jesus Christ by faith and become his follower, the scripture warns us what awaits. Doom awaits. Destruction. Justice. You have rejected the one who made you. So hear this as a warning from God himself. And as you hear this warning, understand it is a great mercy from God. He hasn't simply left you to this judgment without hope, but he holds out his hand and welcomes you if you will come. If you will humble yourself, turn away from your sin and trust in Jesus who saves. Brothers and sisters, by the grace of God, we have heeded those warnings and become his children through faith in Jesus Christ. But don't forget still what a great mercy warnings are to us. One of the commitments we make to one another in the church is that we will speak truth to one another in love, and that includes warnings. So when a brother or sister speaks difficult warnings to you in love, we will not immediately reject them, but we will recognize the mercy of God in them. Consider your heart here, brothers and sisters. How would you respond if someone came to you with a caution or a warning of some sort? They saw your life or your doctrine and had concerns and brought them to you. How would you respond? Oh, I would, I would acknowledge it. I would take it to heart. I would listen. That's the easy answer, isn't it? And it's one I would give as well. And you probably would do that. You would thank them for their words, wouldn't you? We all would. But, if we're honest, wouldn't we do something else? Hidden within the recesses of your heart, there would be a feeling of resentment. There would be a, a, a feeling of righteousness. How could he bring that to me? Why would he give me such a warning? There's, there's no truth in what he brings to me. And our self-righteousness rises up because we do not like to receive words of warning from anyone. How difficult it is, brothers and sisters, to receive a word like this from one another. But it's something we should really be good at. It's something we should really take to heart and receive as a mercy from God. For we have humbled ourselves. In an ultimate way, we have recognized that in and of ourselves, we are absolutely sinful and without hope. We just sang our story together as we sang, All I Have is Christ. I was on the path to ruin and destruction in hell. When God looked upon me with mercy and grace, there was nothing that I did to move to Him. I wouldn't love Him unless He first loved me. How could I have any sense of self Pride, self-righteousness. My response ought to be, and not just outwardly, but it ought to be, brother, if you only knew the half of it. We might even be wise enough to say those words, but inwardly, there's still something missing there, right? That ought to be our response. We know ourselves more than anyone else. We know the warnings we deserve, the warnings we should heed. We should consider it a great mercy of God. We should be great at receiving warnings. So brothers and sisters, let's consider this 
a great mercy and open ourselves up to one another in this. This is how God uses his people to sharpen one another. How does iron sharpen iron unless the two pieces of iron come together and make contact and friction with one another? Let's see warnings for what they are, a great mercy from God. And in these first two verses, we see two great mercies. One, that the word of the Lord comes to Jonah, and two, that he was being sent to proclaim a warning against the Ninevites. And this makes it all the more surprising what Jonah does. You'll remember we read earlier, the word of the Lord came to Elijah, saying, Arise, go to Zarephath, which belongs to Sidon, and dwell there. Behold, I've commanded a widow there to feed you. I didn't read the next sentence, which says, So he arose and went to Zarephath. Instant obedience, as far as we can see. Elijah hears the word of the Lord, hears the direction, and arises and goes. When the voice of the Lord spoke to Samuel, he said at the prompting of Eli, Speak, Lord, for your servant hears. When the voice of the Lord said to Isaiah, Whom shall I send? He responded, Here I am, Lord, send me. Jeremiah had a burden to speak the word of the Lord. It didn't matter if it was a word of blessing or a word of judgment. He couldn't help but speak the word that the Lord had given him. He says, If I say I will not mention him or speak any more in his name, there is in my heart, as it were, a burning fire shut up in my bones. And I am weary with holding it in, and I cannot. But Jonah, having heard the word of the Lord, rises and flees to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. There's no burning fire shut up in his bones. He wants to get away. He'll hold it in and flee from God himself. And it sounds pretty silly, doesn't it? Jonah will flee the presence of the Lord just after hearing that he is sovereign and rules over all nations. He will flee the presence of the Lord just after hearing that the evil of the Ninevites has come up before him. He should have known, as David knew in Psalm 139, where shall I go from your presence? Or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me and the light about me be night, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is bright as the day, for darkness is as light with you. Jonah would know this soon enough. He flees to Tarshish as far away as possible from Nineveh and in the opposite direction across the sea. He is on a mission to travel horizontally westward across the sea and away from Nineveh. And he finds himself at the same time traveling vertically downward, down to Joppa, and then down into the ship, away from the presence of the Lord. Soon he would find himself as low as he could possibly go. And he'd find that God's hands of mercy would still be there to scoop him up and set him back in the right direction. Perhaps we shouldn't be so hard on Jonah, though, 
He probably did know that he couldn't outrun God. Maybe, though, he could get to a place where he wouldn't hear from God anymore. Maybe if he got away from Israel, if he got away from the land of promise, if he got away from the covenant community, God wouldn't speak to him about Nineveh anymore. Surely someone else can carry out the task just as well as he could have. And so he figures while he can't outrun God, maybe he can at least get out of earshot. Maybe that's the same route we take when we try to outrun the Lord. When we try to escape from the presence of the Lord. We know there's no place we can go to escape His presence, but maybe we can avoid Him if we keep out of sight. Perhaps if we stay away from the corporate gathering of God's people enough, the church, we won't feel the sting of conviction or the call to action. We can't flee from God's presence, but maybe if we just stay out of earshot of of His Word, if we ignore the ordinary means of grace, of His Word, if we put off reading Scripture, maybe if we don't give sufficient time to prayer, maybe, just maybe, He'll leave us alone and let us do what we want to do. But, of course, we know the rest of the story of Jonah, don't we? We know it doesn't work for Jonah, and it won't work for us, and it's because God is too merciful for that. He won't allow it to happen for too long. So, friends, why not come back right now? Before you get too far down the line, before you go too low, just come back to the loving and merciful arms of God in Jesus Christ. All of us are fleeing God in some way. Every time you sin, it is a, it is a flying away from the presence of the Lord. And it's not by accident. Nobody sins by accident. It is a movement of the will away from God. We don't see any of the reasons yet why Jonah's doing this. Because we want, the author wants us to see in stark detail his immediate and outright rebellion. This is our rebellion, brothers and sisters. Friends, this is our rebellion. There's some sin perhaps you're unwilling to part with. There are some comforts of this life you're unwilling to let go for the sake of your neighbor or God's glory. There's some holding back of yourself from God because of the commitment that it will mean. In what ways are you trying to flee from the presence of the Lord? Why don't you just turn back around and face Him? We're fleeing the face of God. Turn around and find His compassionate arms in the person and work of Jesus Christ. You can just pray and say, Lord, I'm here, willing and ready to do Your will. Acknowledge to Him your fears and your sins, and let Him bind you up by the grace that He has for you in Jesus Christ. For Jesus Himself did not turn away from the presence of the Lord when God called him to go up, when his father called him to go up to Jerusalem. He set his face toward Jerusalem where he would accomplish the work for which he was sent. To suffer the penalty for sinners, to die on the cross for the ungodly, for those who had rebelled against his will, to give life to all who come to him in faith. So come to him. Come to Jesus. Christ, he will receive you in his mercy.
Let us pray.